0: okay welcome to another episode of philosophical with amanda and brandon um we are going to start today with a recap of the first and second meditations of descartes that we went over in our last episode and then we're also going to go into the third and fourth meditations today and brandon is going to try to try to convince us all to believe in god even though he doesn't know if he believes in god himself i'm not sure what i believe in either so this should definitely be interesting (laughs)
1: I have to make sure I don't say Descartes. It doesn't matter how many times I've said Descartes, I always want to say Descartes.
0: Oh my gosh, why <laughs> um, did you even tell me that? Because now I'm going to want to say
1: it. <laughs> OK, yeah, so I just want to recap. Last episode, we followed the thinker, or the narrative of the meditations, as they searched for a stable ground, a truth which could not possibly be doubted. This stable ground is supposed to be the first principle of all philosophy, and thus, at least for Descartes, for all the sciences. In other words, everything we know about the world is supposed to follow, or at least depend on, this indubitable truth. And what is this truth? I think I am. Before moving forward, I just want to note the strangeness of the situation we're now finding ourselves in. The ground of all the knowledge of the world is supposed to be our simple, immediate knowledge of our own existence. The ego, the self, the I, what is perhaps most mysterious, what seems most difficult to really get to know, is for Descartes the best known, the first known, and the clearest known. Last episode, I noted that the Meditations on First Philosophy begins with an investigation into the question, how can I know? With what right do I know? Why is knowledge possible? I said that this sort of questioning is emblematic of the Cartesian transformation of thinking. Instead of investigating the most basic phenomena of the world, Descartes begins by interrogating our knowledge. In the same way, Descartes bases all of philosophy on the knowledge of our own existence. With Descartes, all questioning begins with a question of the self, of the ego, of the I. I really can't stress enough that this should seem strange, that we shouldn't take this direction of investigation for granted. Perhaps yeah, you might think I like that the I, eye... yeah, no, it's weird. I yeah. think it seems natural, at least to some people these days, but it really is weird, I think. And I mean, perhaps you might think that the I or like that yourself is after all the most immediate thing or like the most obvious thing, the thing nearest and dearest to you. But I'm going to ask you to appreciate how foreign this I really is, how rarely you encounter it. Perhaps it's true that, for the most part, you're concerned with things that ultimately concern you, with your potentialities, with your future, with your current tasks, with what others think about you, with how you appear, with what you're going to eat, with how you'll spend your time in boredom, etc. But in all these cases, our concern is about ourselves only indirectly. Very rarely do we try to confront ourselves head-on without anything else to guide us there. And Descartes is going to base the entirety of the world on our peculiar knowledge of this strange ego. And after Descartes, nearly every philosopher is either going to follow suit, whether implicitly or explicitly, or else they're going to have to work to find a different starting point. These days, Descartes' influence is so strong that many philosophers simply take it for granted that we should start with our capacity to know before we investigate what we know. Many philosophers take it for granted that the way in which we know must surely bear on what we come to know in our own special way of knowing. But this methodology, this approach, this prioritization of epistemology, the study of knowledge, comes to the forefront with the advent of Descartes' peculiar approach. (laughs) You shook your head, Amanda.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, this is, it's definitely interesting, um, and it is weird, for sure. Like, I'm just, like, sitting here, like, it's just, it makes your mind, like, really think about everything that you thought you believed, and, like, what he's really trying to say.
1: Yeah, and I think... This idea of the strangeness of the ego is something I really like to push because I do think it almost seems obvious that what we know the best is ourselves, but I think there's a way of thinking, though, where, like I was saying, we rarely confront ourselves directly. And it's hard to kind of do that. I really do think for the most part, we're engaged with things that are not ourselves. And also when we tend to think about ourselves, I think we often tend to think about ourselves as like a different person. Like we tend to think about our future, our past, like we, we tend to put ourselves as like the object of what we're thinking about instead of trying to confront ourselves like as the one thinking.
0: Right. And I totally agree. And I think it's way harder to i don't want to say judge but that's the word that's coming to mind like judge yourself or to hold yourself accountable than it is you know to hold other people accountable or to allow other people to hold you accountable um it's why you know a lot of people struggle to be self-employed or to have their own business because you're really the only person you're reporting to um it's a lot easier really to have somebody that you're reporting to and to kind of tell you what to do and what process to take so it definitely is interesting to try to think about yourself and how you view yourself um and that's why self-awareness is so hard too
1: yeah and i think even with our own selves we Mm -hmm. often try to you know avoid confronting what we're going to do head on by maybe making like maxims or little rules or like consulting like principles for like you know what should i do in this situation what's the right thing to do i think we often are trying to sort of put the responsibility in someone else's court (laughs) because having the responsibility in your own is tough.
0: Right, totally agree.
1: So the third meditation is at least, I think, one of the most difficult ones to understand. And it's not just because Descartes' conclusions are so tough, and I think they are tough, but because his arguments and terminology are. And I also want to say that although Descartes' conclusion, namely, you know, God exists, is not necessarily the most difficult to say or to have a preliminary understanding of. But I think, at least for me, it's something that so much of myself pushes against. And it's interesting because I'm not entirely sure why I push against this idea so hard without really confronting it. Uh, I was telling you yesterday that a lot of what I've done in philosophy is look at how atheism developed i think that it's a more historically contrived position than maybe a lot of people are willing to accept so whenever a philosopher tells me they're going to prove to me the existence of god or whenever a philosopher starts talking to me about god i don't take this sort of distanced approach where i'm like okay here they're talking about god yada 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 let's get on (laughs) which I do think a lot of people these days do, I really do try to let them tell me why they think God exists or try to prove to me why God exists to try to appreciate what they're saying. And I think that that's tough, at least for me personally, I think for some people, it might be tough to do the opposite.
0: You mean to like, try to assume anything otherwise?
1: Right. And I and I think it's totally fair. And I mean, I think people have like religious reasons to not engage with the other take namely the one that god doesn't exist and i can understand why you know your faith may not i'm just gonna say
0: that it's all it, it all comes down to faith so anytime that i've had a conversation with people about this topic because like i said i really um don't know what i believe in necessarily i would like to believe in god and i would like to believe that there's like a higher power and there's a heaven and like the fact that that we could just die and just be dead is like really sad and scary but i think that probably drives a lot of the reason that people do have such a strong faith because why wouldn't you want to believe that honestly I mean it feels like a lot more peaceful and it feels a lot better but I know what you're saying because for me I don't want to say I'm a combative person but really when somebody tries to tell me something I I like to have hard facts and when there are no hard facts and you have to rely totally on faith that's a really hard place to be but I go back and forth for sure Uh, like you know some days I'm like yeah I definitely believe in this and other days I'm like "Eh, I just don't know (laughs)
1: Right. When I was in middle school, I was basically an evangelical. I was converting all my friends. I got uh, Danny Ter and Kyle Keach had them saved. You know, I was really doing my part. But um, then,
0: same. I mean, I went to all those missions trips. Like you remember, like I was. Right. I literally I, for oh, a whole right. year. Yeah, I didn't miss youth group on Wednesdays and church on Sundays. I did not miss it. Like, I mean, I went to Mexico. I went to New York. I went on all these trips, and like I was in it. Which is not shocking for my personality. I'm in or I'm out. But Yeah, I was in it. I was in it for a while.
1: Right. And then, you know, around the same time, I started to realize I was gay. And so I kept looking up like, you know, (laughs) can I go to heaven if I'm gay? Is it okay to be gay? And I didn't get good results. Google wasn't very kind at the time.
0: Google is never (laughs) kind.
1: So, (laughs) And so I sort of was like, oh, no, I have to, you know, and then I think that that sort of initiated my withdrawing from the church and then I'm the same way I'm either in or I'm out a lot of the time I try to resist that because I don't think it's very philosophical but I (laughs) but it's how I am and so you know I railed against it I was a hardcore atheist just as much as I was an evangelical Christian and once I started studying philosophy things got a little bit more complicated but I guess I'm just gonna get into the third meditation see what Descartes has to say about Mm -hmm. it Um, So, like I alluded to, the terminology is insane. I think I sent you a Snapchat of just like a little paragraph, Descartes, you know, talking about all these objective ideas, the formal reality of ideas, talking about the way in which one idea can be the cause of another idea. And the terminology is all over the place. So for our purposes, we don't need to delve too deeply into the scholastic intricacies which Descartes operates within
0: yeah that's a great Uh, idea because that's the whole point you (laughs) sent me that and i was like um yeah and I, i don't think we've talked about this too much on here yet but like i am pretty educated you know i have my bachelor's in psychology i have my master's degree but trying to read this stuff i it might as well just be in a totally different language like it i can't and i sent it to another friend and she read it she's also you know pretty intelligent and she's like um, I had to reread that like five times, and I still am not sure what I'm reading. <laughs> it's just like it's something right. different that it's you have to English, be able to process.
1: But yeah, it's, right. it's very tough. And I mean, ultimately, I'm also trying to translate it. You're right that it's in a, another sort right. of language in a way. I have to really take apart each piece, think about what each term is doing, what each term means, and then try to hold it all together. And it does sometimes feel like an act of translation. Right. Um, So I'm going to try to outline the general project of the Third Meditation and make clear some of its more interesting insights. So in his synopsis of the Third Meditation, Descartes writes, In the Third Meditation, I have explained quite fully enough, I think, my principal argument for proving the existence of God. My general summary of his argument may not be quite as convincing as his, because this is much more precise, just because of the terminology, but I'll try my best. So." The thinker be- begins by distinguishing between three types of ideas. On the one hand, we have those ideas which appear to be innate, for example, what thought is. Descartes says that we know right away what thought is. We don't need to learn this from someone else. On the other hand, we have ideas which appear to come from the outside, like from, you know, external things. Uh, so Descartes' example is what the sun is. Um, that's something you know we see. It's out there. And then we have those ideas which appear to be self-invented. So, for example, what a unicorn is, or, you know, fake things, imaginary things. The thinker is most interested in investigating the second type of idea, namely the sort of idea which appears to come from outside. And this makes sense because, as we saw in our last episode, the thinker is suspicious of what we'll call external ideas. As we've already seen, the thinker notes that these ideas often don't resemble the things they come from at all. And we really don't have to conclude that they come from outside. And in general, we already have been doubting these. We still haven't secured the existence of such things. The thinker famously uses the example of the sun in the third meditation. Basically, they note that the idea of the sun, which comes from outside us, would suggest that the sun is pretty small, that it's in the sky, etc. But the idea we have of the sun, which follows from the principles which are innate in us, suggests it's many times bigger than the earth. Basically, the thinker is saying that the idea we get from the outside doesn't necessarily seem to involve the truth of what the idea is of. So we can conclude that the ideas that do involve the truth come from the ideas which are innate from us, and that the ideas that don't involve the truth are in fact invented by us. So, the thinker is going to inquire about ideas which really do come from outside of us, and in order to do so, the thinker is going to employ some complicated scholastic apparatus. Basically, and I know this is weird, but we're just going to have to go with it. The thinker (laughs) is going to say that the idea we have of something cannot itself have more reality than the cause of that idea. So I'm going to try to explain what I think is the intuitive appeal of this and hope that what the heck is being said is a little bit clearer. Um, Basically, we want to say that an effect cannot be greater than the cause. So... A person cannot lift more weight than like their muscles can handle. Something with a ton of mass cannot be entirely caused by something with less mass. So usually if we have like a huge thing and it's supposed to be caused by a little thing, not necessarily huge or little in size, then we want to look for like something else that also caused it. Like usually we don't like the idea that on its own, something can bring about something greater than itself. Right. And the thinker is going to consider our idea of God. Basically, our idea of God is an idea of something supremely powerful, infinite, perfect, and good. And here we already have this, like, philosophical God, which is a little bit different from the Christian God per se. I mean, Descartes is a Christian, so ultimately he's talking about the same thing. But when philosophers talk about God, they usually like to use these superlatives. So supremely powerful, infinite, perfect, the the best, you know? But the idea we have of ourselves, the thinker says, is the idea of something finite with limited power, imperfect and susceptible to error.
0: Right. That makes sense.
1: Yeah. And it's a really deep insight. And I want to talk about it a little bit more. I actually wrote my thesis for my bachelor's on the relationship between finitude and temporality in Kant's Critique of Pure Reason through the lens of Heidegger. But anyway, this idea of finitude, I'm personally really attracted to it. So, the idea of human finitude is actually going to be everywhere, at least in philosophy. Descartes wants to say that the very structure of our thinking betrays our finitude. When we desire something, when we doubt something, we are lacking something. We don't desire what we already have, and we would never doubt anything if we weren't susceptible to not having the truth before us clearly. Personally, I want to add that we always find ourselves among other things. Now, at the current stage in the meditations, the thinker isn't sure of the existence of those things, so the thinker isn't going to use this point. At least not yet. But the fact is, we find ourselves among other things. We do not create everything around us. As much as we might want to have power over everything else, obviously things are often out of our control. We're limited. And that is why we have to come to know things in the first place. That is why we have to go through the laborious process of learning. We desire things we don't get. And in particular, we desire things even though we cannot ensure that we'll get them. Shit happens to us even when we don't want it to. We get sick, we get bug bites, we lose things we love. We are constantly reminded of our finitude, always striving to overcome it, to ignore it, to hope we can be lucky enough to have things go well. God, or a perfect being, has no need for striving, no need for luck, or no need for hope. So Descartes raises what I think is a very interesting question. Where does our idea of God come from?
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, honestly, I thought, like I said, I thought about this often uh, because to me it just seems And honestly, you know, what's crazy is all those times I spent in church and like we just talked about, I really am still not very familiar with the Bible, even though I'm pretty sure I read the whole thing at one point, um, especially the Old Testament. But so I honestly don't even know, like, where did it come from? (laughs) Like, who, like, how did this come to be? It's just mind blowing to me to even consider how it happened.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it's interesting because I'm, I tend to think along the lines of, well okay, I learned about God because someone told me about God. Right. But, you know, then of course, you know, there's the question, where did they learn about God from? And you can keep pushing that back. And this would, I think the problem with this line of thinking is it seems to suggest that like, well, eventually somebody had to have invented it. But I'm not sure that that's not, that that's really how it works. Because all over we find, you know, in different cultures throughout history, at least they believe in divinity. Like, it seems like, from different sources, you know, this idea of divinity pops up again and again and again and again. It's somehow like really fundamental to the sorts of beings we are, this idea of divinity or of God. Right. Yeah, no, it's it's hard to know. And I and I think you can't really answer this question by appealing to like, well, at some point people invented it. I don't think that that's necessarily correct. Descartes is going to argue that. Because this idea is the idea of something infinite and perfect, it's not in our power to invent it. We're not capable of inventing it. I think this is going to be a sort of striking claim that's hard to appreciate at first glance. The thinker employs really difficult scholastic arguments. In short, they're going to say that the reality of the idea of God itself, so like on the one hand, there's the reality of God, but then there's the reality which is within our idea of God. So... The reality of the idea of God itself, which is objectively infinite, surpasses the reality of our own self, which is finite. So a being cannot invent the infinite. A finite being cannot invent the infinite.
0: So he's so he's saying that it's not we couldn't possibly somebody however many years ago at some point in history could not have possibly come up with this idea of God because like, it's infathomable almost.
1: Right. It's simply beyond our power. Just like how we were saying earlier that the power of an effect cannot be greater than the cause. Well, if we suppose that we invent the idea of God, then in a way the human being is the cause of God. But Descartes is here saying that if we did that, then this would be the case where we have a less powerful cause creating a more powerful effect.
0: Right. Interesting. I guess that does make sense because if you're thinking about it, like I'm thinking about who would have wanted to just like invent God? Like who would be like, oh, you know what? I'm going to come up with this all powerful being um, and try to get the rest of the people to follow him. Like it doesn't seem logical.
1: Right. And especially it's remarkable that it happens, I think in nearly every human culture, but not in animals. Which is maybe a, a point for like a different time. But like, I don't think Bentley, your dog, is over there believing in God or not believing
0: <laughs> in God. I, I wish Bentley believed in God. <laughs> I wish he believed in a heaven and a hell. My life uh, would be
1: easier. <laughs> so it's it's a very human thing. And I guess my point with bringing that up is you might expect that the idea, something like an idea of God could also be invented by a somewhat lesser being than ourselves if you assume that animals are lesser beings. And Descartes totally does. But there's something important about the relationship between human beings and divinity. It's like a special relationship. It's not something that we see in any other animal, basically.
0: Well, and I find it interesting, too. This is just a side note. But that there's like kind of like you said, like even in all of these different religions, there's I mean, gosh, I don't even know how many religions there are. But there's always some sort of a higher being, like whether or not like it's God or whoever it is. But really, they all kind of have the same meaning or you know the same like people worship them essentially and it's all based off of faith i mean like none of these are proven it's all based off of faith like they all share that commonality
1: right yeah and i mean i think it's easy to overlook how bizarre it is that we have an idea not even just of god but of something like an infinite like pure supreme being and i want to ask like where on earth does this idea come from? And I mean that literally, if you look around you all you want on earth, you'll never find the source of this idea. You're not going to go around and like dig up a cave and suddenly be like, aha, there's God. <laughs> like, And I think a lot of our ideas come from things that we encounter, you know, it's like, well, my, I have a, you know, there's the laptop right there. Like, you know, there's my microwave over there, et cetera, et cetera. Our idea of God is not like that. And I think even for more complicated things like say religion religion is also something where you're not just going to go around and find some like item and that item is religion but at least you can see religion like you can right. see people attending church you can see people practicing their faith you can see people celebrating you know ceremonial holidays
0: right wearing we, necklaces or whatever
1: right yeah we can see in some sense religion god on the other hand a perfect supremely powerful being, that's nowhere to be found. We don't we don't see that. I think some people will say that some people see it via revelation. Right. And that's very interesting, but I don't necessarily want to go into that because Descartes doesn't go into that and I'm not really qualified to talk about revelation. It's a super complicated <laughs> topic. But at least me personally, I'm not lucky enough. I've not seen God. I think there are cases where maybe there's something about prayer where you you are speaking to God. And I think taking that phrase seriously, speaking to God, not thinking we're not, you know, that we're just talking to ourselves and we're just hoping God is listening. We say I'm speaking to God when I'm praying. So I do think that maybe that's a point of connection. There's some sort of unity between us and God and prayer in our speaking. But that's the best I can get. Other than that, you know, I don't I don't go. Well, I think some people
0: like see it or however you want to word it in and- you know actions or in things that happen in life like as opposed to being able to see the keyboard or the laptop or whatever um it's more that you know somebody who is sick is not sick anymore or like people use it in that context right um, their prayers have been answered um you're totally right
1: that's a really good point in a way then that's sort of like the religion case where you might not see religion but you see things that we call like religious or like you know acts of religion and maybe we see like miracles or acts of god
0: Right. Exactly. You know, and even like when you watch these TV shows or whatever, like these medical shows, they'll say like, oh, somebody's super sick. And they're like, what's the only thing left to do now? And, you know, they'll say pray or, you know, do whatever you have to do, whatever you believe in, like, you know, that kind of thing. So,
1: Right. I think, though, that even this presupposes that we already have some idea of God. And I think that's what Descartes is going to want to say and that we still haven't answered the question of how we can have such an idea. Because it's not even just about where does it come from it's also how can we how can we contain it like how can we have in our possession I agree
0: I read something right I read something somewhere that said something about um like your brain if you're just like a normal human who is not a millionaire <laughs> like cannot fathom having a million dollars like you can you know what a million dollars is you you know hear all about it you read all about it but our brains cannot possibly fathom actually having that much money because it's just not something that's you know we've ever seen before and most people haven't
1: yeah and i think that that's really interesting because um descartes is confronted in the objections and the replies at the end of the book and someone brings up you know although we can maybe understand sort of abstractly or simply intellectually this infinite pure idea we certainly can't grasp god Right. And Descartes' exactly. response is interesting. Descartes says, you're totally right. We cannot grasp God. We And the, the Latin word is um, the root of comprehend. But anyway, so we can't comprehend God. We can't fathom God. But Descartes does say we do understand God. And that itself is still a problem. In the same way that, like you said, we can understand, like we know what a million dollars is. Like if you told me like, well, if I have a million dollars and you have a million dollars, I can say that together we have two million. Like we can right. do operations on a million dollars. We- We understand it, and Descartes is a psycho because he prefers that sort of understanding. He thinks that that sort of understanding is less confused, is clearer than the like grasping or the fathoming. I mean, because
0: we're liable to
1: get like the grasping things wrong. Like sometimes, in a way, once we grasp something, we stop understanding it clearly because it's so natural and easy to us, and so it's easy for us to get confused about it or make mistakes about it, or you know, we can ultimately doubt the things that we grasp.
0: I mean. Honestly, it makes a lot of sense and I kind of wish more things were like that in the world. I mean, then it wouldn't be as life wouldn't be as interesting if every it's kind of like black and white thinking. Like it's like, okay, well, this is this. A million dollars is a million dollars. God is God, and that's really all that we have to know. But like obviously, there's way more to the human experience than that. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Sometimes in certain situations it would be so much easier to just be like, yeah, it's a million dollars. A million dollars is 1 plus 1 is 2. Like <laughs>
1: it's just <Right>. yeah. <laughs> So I think that we do have to take seriously that we understand God, though. And that's what Descartes is ultimately concerned with, that we can form something like an idea of an infinite, perfect being. And right now, Descartes is wondering, like, whether or not that is something that we could invent. You know, somehow we have an idea of not only something that's infinite, but something that's transcendent, something that's beyond all, like, earthly, mortal beings. So how could we come to invent something that is beyond basically everything that we encounter or deal with? So surely this sort of invention, for instance, is not like that of the unicorn. And so the the moderns, as they call it, the early moderns, which are the the philosophers of Descartes era and a little bit after, they like to think of imagination as sort of a, a combination process where we take ideas that we do know, so say like a horse and a horn, and we mash them together to get some new imaginary thing, a unicorn. Uh, David Hume, who I actually think we're going to read next, um, talks about a golden mountain. Like, although a golden mountain isn't real, it's a figment of our imagination. When we think of a golden mountain, what we're doing is we're taking two ideas we do know, a golden and a mountain, and we're putting them together. God is not like that sort of thing. You don't take different ideas of different things that you encounter and then mesh them together, and then eventually you get God. That can't be it. We can't invent God by combination. Maybe someone would say that we simply think of one thing, and then we think of an even better thing or a greater thing, and then an even greater thing, and then we eventually end up with the greatest thing. And someone actually brings up this sort of possibility to Descartes once again in the objections and the replies. But from searching for something greater and greater, we never really arrive at the greatest. It takes something like a leap to get to that. And Descartes wonders how on earth we're capable of making such a leap. And Descartes' actually going to um, distinguish between a sort of limited infinity, which he thinks is like, say, like if we think of like the infinity, like the number infinity, like the one you might deal with in math class, the infinity of say the natural numbers, which are like the numbers you count with, the counting numbers like one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. With that, et cetera. I seem to indicate something like an infinity. I am sort of saying like, well, you know, it's indefinite. Like the that list goes on indefinitely. It has no natural stopping point. But I don't necessarily comprehend or even, I think, understand that uh, like all the natural numbers say as itself a unified infinity. Whereas with God, the infinity is the first thing. We don't have to think of one thing and then another thing and then another thing. We start right away with the infinity of God. So I'm going to quote him quickly here, since he's actually clear for like, you know, one of the two times in this entire meditation. So Descartes writes, though it is true that there is a gradual increase in my knowledge, and that I have many potentialities which are not yet actual, this is all quite irrelevant to the idea of God, which contains absolutely nothing that is potential. Indeed, this gradual increase in knowledge is itself the surest sign of imperfection. What is more, Even if my knowledge always increases more and more, I recognize no point where it is not capable of a further increase. God, on the other hand, I take to be actually infinite, so there is nothing that can be added to his perfection. So when we think about going from a list of things that are better and better and better, and then eventually we hope we end up with God, which people have done throughout history, like philosophers, I think Descartes wants to say that as long as we're considering things that are better and better, there's no reason we should ever come to a point where there's something that can't be better. These things that we're considering are always potentially better than they are. But God, on the other hand, could not be any better. Nothing can be added. So Descartes thinks this is pretty conclusive evidence that the idea of like the transcendent, perfect, infinite being can not come from us, which is to say that we can't invent it. Um, It can only come from something equally or more perfect and infinite. But there is nothing more perfect or more infinite than the perfect and the infinite (laughs) So the thinker concludes that the idea has to come from something perfect and infinite, in short, from God. So it's clear the thinker concludes that we did not invent the idea of God. And as we've said many times, basically the the ultimate argument is that it's not within our capacity to do so. And so now Descartes raises what I think is a natural question. If this idea of God comes from God, is it the first kind of idea, which is innate, or is it the second kind of idea, which comes from something external? The thinker argues that it's surely not the second kind of idea, because we obviously, like we were saying earlier, don't get the idea of God from the senses. More precisely, we don't get our idea of God from something like out there in the world. There's nobody. I mean, there there have been people who come around and say, I am God, that's different. But I think the idea of God predates or like even to make sense, if somebody were to tell you I am God, we sort of have to know what a God is in the first place to understand the significance of what they're saying.
0: The other interesting thing I just thought about when you said the senses is that he literally argues against the senses even. So like, even if we could see God, I almost feel like he would still have an argument. Like it's just, it's like all full circle.
1: No, exactly. That's exactly correct. Even if we could see God, like, yeah, 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 whatever, let's doubt that. Right. (laughs) He's crazy like that. So it's almost (laughs) like
0: irrelevant, the fact that we can't see him or like, there's no tangible proof, because even if there were tangible proof, he would be like, well, you're dreaming. So. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) (laughs) So the thinker concludes that it must be like the first kind of idea or like the innate kind of idea, which is to say that the idea of God is innate in us and just as fundamental to us as the idea of ourselves. So in a way, then we have two starting points. Descartes is going to basically say that from a reflection on the ego, on the I, which is, this imperfect, limited being, comes the idea of a being that is not imperfect, a being that is infinite, but not just not imperfect, but like positively perfect. And that from the very idea of ourselves, which we haven't doubted, which we, you know, finally have secure, now we have the idea of God as well. And maybe it's even worth saying that at this point, our starting point of the ego was first in the order of knowledge, it's the first thing we arrived at in the meditations, but it's ultimately not the most fundamental thing for Descartes, which would be God. Once again, I wanna quote Descartes because he's actually helpful again. He says, "'When I turn my mind's eye upon myself, "'I understand that I am a thing "'which is incomplete and dependent on another, "'and which aspires without limit "'to ever greater and better things. "'But I also understand at the same time "'that he on whom I depend "'has within him all those greater things not just indefinitely and potentially, but actually and infinitely, and hence that he is God. So the upshot of all of this, I think, at least for, you know, the purposes of the meditations, is that the thinker concludes that this perfect and infinite God cannot be a deceiver. So this sort of God cannot be the evil demon we talked about earlier from the first meditation. Descartes doesn't explain this point very much he basically just notes and, you know, thinks that it's obvious that being deceptive is a sort of defect. So, you know, a perfect thing can't be deceptive. Does that make intuitive sense to you? I sort of had to try to think about why I would want to say that that's true. Descartes, so I've been avoiding this because it's kind of difficult to talk about, but Descartes has this thing where he likes to talk about something that is clear and distinct. And he likes to talk about, seeing things by the natural light. And so for him, whenever he says that he sees something by the natural light, he means to say that he couldn't possibly doubt it. And so he says that something that's perfect, can't be deceptive, is clear by the natural light. <laughs> and so you're like, thanks, Descartes.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thanks for clearing that up. It's very clear and concise. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> so I think that one way to go about it is to note that deception, I think, is sort of like an expression of falsity. Or like when someone's being deceptive, they're manifesting something that really isn't the case. So if God's going to be deceptive, then God would have to manifest something that God himself isn't, since we want to say that God is like supposed to be the truth. So in that way, God, you know, wouldn't limit himself. He wouldn't express something that he isn't, because that would be to, yeah, to limit himself, to hold himself back in a way, to clarify what he is, to bound himself by indicating what he isn't. That's the best way I can make sense of it. But I also think there's like an intuitive appeal, like being deceptive is kind of bad. You know, we don't want to say that someone who's, you know, supremely good is a deceiver. Right.
0: That wouldn't track.
1: (laughs) Descartes actually going to end up using the fact that God exists and is not deceptive to try to secure the rest of our knowledge. Because if you remember back in the first meditation, we were worried about this evil demon where... Basically, we got to a point where in order to keep doubting everything, we had to posit this evil demon who is going to deceive us about everything. But now we know that if something is omnipotent, then it can't be deceptive. So those things that we doubted by the evil demon, we're, we might be able to secure with this new knowledge of God. Interesting. So this is going to be how Descartes sort of puts things back together. The general scheme is first going to be doubting everything that can be doubted, arriving on this simple truth, I exist, and then using the fact that I exist to demonstrate that God must exist, and then using the fact that God must exist to put together reality again, to restore the things that we doubted in a qualified way and maybe a slightly different way. But that's the general direction.
0: Hmm. It's coming full circle.
1: Yeah. So the fourth meditation, I'm not going to talk about it as long it's almost sort of like a detour um the heading of the fourth meditation is truth and falsity so before putting reality back together the thinker is going to begin with what i think is a good follow-up question which is if the ego is god's creation and if god's not a deceiver and if god is supremely perfect and powerful why do we still make mistakes why do we get things wrong
0: (laughs) i think that's a very fundamental question or why do bad things happen like just in general which is ultimately the same thing because if somebody's doing something wrong that is typically how bad things happen
1: on my docket next i literally have written i think this gets at a really fundamental question in both philosophy and (laughs) day-to-day life which is if god is supremely good and supremely powerful how can bad things still happen
0: (laughs) right yeah (laughs) Yeah, i mean it's It's the same question
1: basically yeah right like which is to say like why do things go wrong And I think that this is something that even very faithful people like, you know, confront and deal with when bad things happen. It's hard to reconcile the fact that there's someone looking out for you that, you know, there's a supremely good creator, but things still seem so sucky sometimes. Right. So this is something that, you know, is an ancient problem for philosophers and they often call it the problem of evil. And St. Augustine is probably the most famous and most influential treatment of the problem. St. Augustine really influences Descartes a lot. At many different points, Descartes sort of echoes St. Augustine. Even St. Augustine says, I think, therefore I am, at one point, and does the sort of same reduction to the ego. Um, and Descartes' way of addressing this problem is similar to Augustine's, but a little bit different. And I think eventually I want to go into Augustine. Augustine has a book called On the Free Choice of the Will, where freedom of the will is sort of, I think, first invented. So that seems freedom of the will, free will seems like such a fundamental, you know, aspect of what it is to be human. But it was invented in 300, in the year 300 by a man named Augustine. Oh, interesting. I think it's kind of cool to go over that to see the invention of the freedom of the will. Right. But anyway, we're with Descartes now. So spoiler alert, Descartes basically going to answer that things can go wrong because of free will. <laughs> with free will is an interesting way that Augustine tries to answer this problem. And I think it's the one that people still echo to this day. And I mean, St. Augustine is very important for the development of Catholic philosophy and theology. He's a saint. And so I think that maybe one of the reasons we are so quick to say that things can go wrong or we make mistakes because we're free is because that's what Augustine says. And we're still sort of repeating what Augustine says, but the approach is maybe a little more subtle than you might expect. Because I think even if you say, well, we go wrong because of free will, why would God give us a will or a free will that lets us go wrong? Like that seems like a defect once again, like it still seems like this lets bad things happen for no good reason. The thinker agrees that it would be a problem if God gave us some sort of like faulty faculty. Instead, the thinker wants to say that the cause of our error is the overextension of our will and sort of results from the interaction between two of our faculties, neither of which is problematic on its own, but together we tend to go astray. So allow me to explain. According to the thinker, whenever we say that something is wrong, it's because we choose by the freedom of our will to assent to something we didn't completely understand. Whenever we go wrong, whenever we make a mistake, it's because by the freedom of our will, We went with something without completely understanding it. Hmm. In other words, Descartes says here that on the one hand we have something like the faculty of knowledge, and on the other hand we have the faculty of the will. Through the power of knowledge, we make judgments about things, and not just like judgy judgments, but like you know the judgment like that is a cup of coffee would be a judgment, like you just you know pass judgment on reality. Through the power of the will, Descartes says we are free to either assent or to dissent. We can either affirm something that the faculty of knowledge puts forth, or we can deny it. And the freedom of the will basically consists in the possibility of assenting or denying. The power of the will is free. And I mean, at least this, I think, makes sense initially. It seems natural to say that like we can consider something and then decide whether we agree with it, that this is almost like two sort of actions. On the one hand, you know, I tell you something, on the other hand, you might deliberate about whether or not you agree with it. I do want to say that this idea, this separation between the faculty of knowledge and the faculty of the will, is something many, many philosophers are going to take issue with. And Spinoza, who I've mentioned before, is basically, I think, Descartes' most serious immediate critic. Spinoza starts off as a student of Descartes, he loves Descartes, and then eventually he totally goes against Descartes in basically every way imaginable. Still using a lot of the same principles though, which is interesting. But Spinoza is going to say that there is no separation between the uh, intellect and the will, that it's really a matter of how well we understand something and then once we understand it and like how well we understand it dictates whether or not we agree with it. And I mean Hegel is going to follow Spinoza. Many people, and even today actually, analytic philosophers are now once again revisiting Hegel and to some extent Spinoza, because basically one of the founders of the most popular traditions in philosophy today agreed with Descartes that there's a distinction here between what he called like the content of a thought and like whether or not we say that that uh, thought is true or false or like whether or not we agree with it. But this leads to problems which I don't totally understand because I'm not that into contemporary logic. But, you know, even today, it's a big, hot topic. Uh, so it's worth just noting that. But I want to take note of what I think is like an interesting question raised by the thinker, which is, do you think we're more free when we're unsure what to do or when we're totally set on the path?
0: I would argue that it's when we are very set, like we know what we're supposed to do. I think that gives you the freedom to kind of like not be like trapped in the process. Like when when we have all of the freedom in the world, it's really hard to like, utilize that freedom almost because i feel like there's just too much going on and it's like you've you're so many battles in your head um at least for me when but when i know like exactly what i'm supposed to do it's very easy to just kind of do that and you of course have the freedom not to but it's almost like why would you
1: yeah no i love that descartes 100 agrees <laughs> yeah according to descartes we're most free when we're like sure of the right direction and we follow that one without hesitation for me that's counterintuitive because i tend to think that We're more free when we're like deliberating about what we should or shouldn't do. And when, yeah, like when we're unsure, because to me, this is almost like, well, we're not just going along with the path, but I think ultimately maybe I'm wrong about that. And I think you're probably right.
0: Well, I don't think there's necessarily even a right or a wrong. It's probably just, and every person is so different. You know, everybody has different. So for you, you might feel more free whenever you have, you know, some deliberation and some room to kind of go back and forth. Um for me, I just like, you know, my personality type. I just like it to be very clear. Like you tell me what I need to do and I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, or yeah, yeah. I'm telling me what I need to do and I know this is the best option and I'm going to do that. And then I feel like I don't feel the stress. I feel way more free, but I think it could, I don't think there's a right or a wrong.
1: Yeah. Emmanuel Kant is going to say that we're most free when we give ourselves rules and then when we follow them. That, right. Like, you know, this is how we this is how we're free where we're our own ruler. We're still obeying ourselves. He's weird like that. Kant loves right. obedience. But um, <laughs> oh, Gosh. yeah, so like Descartes thinks that like indifferent deliberation is the mark of a sort of confusion, actually. And he says that when we can't decide what to do, and when the way isn't clear, we're sort of trapped or like our will is paralyzed, like you said. Uh, we're not able to determine the right thing to do. We're not able to understand which option is the better one. And our knowledge is thereby deficient, Descartes says. And I think he's saying that if we knew both of our options, a hundred percent, if we had, you know, clear and distinct ideas of our options, we would know which one is the better one. And if they if neither was the better one, then we wouldn't have any problem just assenting or denying to either. Right. Yeah, so when so when we're not sure, our will is in a way sort of held back by our inability to really, really clearly know our options. We're still free when we're indifferent, Descartes says, but we're not at our freest. And his explanation, I think, is illuminating. So the thinker says, if I always saw clearly what was true and good, I should never have to deliberate about the right judgment of choice. In that case, although I should be wholly free, it would be impossible for me to ever be in a state of indifference. And if I'm going to reach a bit here, I might suggest that Descartes is letting us know that like, if we want to be the most free, and maybe this like applies especially for you because of how you said you feel most free, you need to make sure you acquire as much knowledge as you can about your options, your judgments, and your ideas. So that in a way, knowledge is the way to freedom. And I know that sounds like cliche or cheesy, but I think you can kind of see that if you're stuck between two options and you don't know which one is the better one, instead of weighing pros and cons, make sure that you have a good idea of the options that you're weighing before you try to think of their pros and cons, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, no, it does make sense. I think it's so interesting to try to think about when it's, I mean, we're presented with these things all the time when you have an option and they they feel like both are equally good or equally bad. Like no matter what you do, you're going to have the same end result. Because I think for me, um, (laughs) this is funny because even our mom uses this now, my friends use it all the time. Whenever I'm faced with a decision, and it's a decision that's not a clear answer, like you don't know, like, it could be something as simple as like, actually, mom said she used this, I just ran in a half marathon this weekend, and she was deciding if she was going to come or not. And she said, you know, what would I regret more? Because I think about that all the time when I'm trying to make a decision, like, ultimately, if she came or she didn't come, it, it nothing was going to change, I was going to finish, I was going to, you know, I knew she was proud of me either way, whatever. But for her, she was like, well, I would definitely regret not coming more than I would regret going. So she came. But I think about that a lot what would i regret more like when i'm faced with these decisions that it's like it's not really a relevant decision it doesn't really matter but like what would i regret more Would i regret getting the ice cream or not getting the ice cream <laughs> you know it's just like it makes it easier sometimes to make a decision but when there's not a clear answer it is hard to make those decisions
1: yeah and i think like in the case of whether or not you want to, or like, you're going to go to say, watch your half marathon, or whether or not say, I'm gonna to go to watch your half marathon or something. I think thinking about what I would regret more if I'm gonna, you know, reach a little bit here is I think one of the ways I might try to get a better understanding of what it is that I'm going to be doing. Because right. I think there's one way of thinking about what I'm going to be doing as well. I'm going to show up, I'm going to stand there. You know, I'll cheer you on when you come. Like, I'll think about what I'm going to do. Right. but that doesn't that's not the only way to understand what going to watch you is. It's also say, well, I'm going to go support you. And that's something where if I knew that I had the option to go support you in something and I didn't go do it, then then I would regret that. And so I think sometimes like thinking really about what it is that you're thinking about doing entails, like what it really is, not just like what you'll be doing or how you'll feel about it, but also what it means. I think that getting a better understanding of what something is sometimes looks like thinking about what you would regret more. Because I think Exactly when you ask yeah, the question, What will I regret more? You try to approach what you're thinking about doing in a different way, from a different direction, from a different right. way of thinking. You're
0: thinking about the end result of said thing and deciding like basically what is more important to you. And so when you do that, you're placing value on the doing or the not doing and you're, you know, you're essentially because when you're thinking about something, it's oh, do I go or do I not go? It's like, well, it doesn't really it's not going to make a difference either way. The world isn't going to end. Nothing in my day is going to be changed, really. You're thinking about, but when you say, what would I regret more, you're really just thinking about, you're thinking it out almost. Like not necessarily making a pro-con list, but you're just thinking out exactly what. And it brings up feelings that you might not have necessarily like, thought about prior to thinking about it in that way. So you have more emotional way, too, to think about it. You know, like what right. else it's more emotional response in either scenario.
1: Right. Yeah. And I like the phrase you use where you're considering like, you know, what's important to you. (laughs) Right. So I guess that's almost all that I had. Um, But before ending the episode, I want to talk about the way in which Descartes makes sense of the problem of evil that I introduced earlier, because even though we're talking about, you know, the relation between freedom and knowledge and what, you know, and deliberation, I did, you know, open up this big can of worms, which is why do bad things happen. And Descartes addresses it, and basically what I would say is the traditional way. On the one hand, the thinker is going to argue that even if we're prone to getting things wrong, we should understand error as a privation. In other words, we shouldn't regard our mistakes or our falsehoods as being anything at all, but rather as not being what they could have been, or like not being the best thing. And so this is Augustine's approach towards sin, thinking of sin as a privation, as something that is a fall from being, not something that really is at all. So this is like, I think, a really weird maneuver. And to me, it's still hard to really get a grip on this. Descartes, I think, addresses it in maybe a more understandable way. He's going to say that, okay, so on the one hand, we have the highest being, the infinite being, God. And the opposite of God is nothing, or the nothing, as they'll say. Like it's, you know, the void, the complete non-being. Somewhere between God and nothing, Descartes says, is us. So between like the finite, or between like zero and the infinite is like the finite, and that's what we are. The human being isn't nothing, but it isn't God either. So when we properly apply our will and only assent to what we really understand, we're participating in being, we're being like God, we're being active, we're being affirmative, we're taking control. But when we let our judgment be clouded, we are participating in non-being. We are not taking control, we're not being active. We are being unlike God or unlike being is sort of the way of thinking about that. Hmm. So it's not that God is the cause of our mistakes, If anything, God has nothing to do with our mistakes. Our mistakes, you know, from perspective of God, subspecie aeterni, aren't anything at all. They are the way in which we are doing nothing, not in which we are doing something which is bad. I don't know if I 100% believe this, but I think it's really interesting.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, But the thing is, is that all of this stuff is just so relative. It's so relative. You could do something that for you is deemed bad, you know, quote unquote bad. Um, And for me, I'm like, eh, you know, whatever you do, you like, it's just everybody has such a like, besides like the obvious, you know, but even that even murder, okay, you kill somebody because they come into your house and try to kill you. I mean, is that you know, it's just everything is so relative. So I just think it's really it is really interesting to try to differentiate between like, okay, so he's saying that if you do something that's widely seen as wrong. It's really just nothing in the eyes of God, which is kind of scary. (laughs) Um, you know, if you have like somebody who I don't know, that could be very scary if you're opening up a can of worms, but um, or it could be freeing, you know, if I do something and I'm just like, okay, I feel like that was bad or that was wrong, but you know, it's okay because I'm imperfect and, you know, you you play you play that scenario out. It's just interesting to try to think
1: it all. Think about
0: it all. But it's it's all just so relative.
1: Right. And I think that philosophers are really worried. I I personally, ethics is not my cup of tea, but I do think that philosophers are worried about the extent to which everything is relative and are desperately trying to make things not relative. I think in a world where like a dominant religion exists, like such as say, like in Descartes' time, Christianity, this problem is a lot Less pressing because things aren't relative. You know, does God say it's good or not? (laughs) Right. Yes. It's much easier when it's like someone tells you what's right and what's wrong and you don't have to worry about it. I think, you know, in our honestly, I think in our godless era, I do think that especially our generation is for the most part godless. I think a lot of people are disillusioned. Of course, people are still faithful and like religion still exists, but I do think there are a lot of people who, you know, even if they aren't sure what to believe, they're not adhering to, say, like the doctrines of a, of a religion. They're, they can't consult right. a religion if they're worried about what, you know, whether something is right or wrong. And I think that philosophers in this day and age are concerned with finding some sort of, you know, recipe or like way of thinking about good so that things aren't totally relative because we want, I think, I think there's a desire to make things not relative because, if things are relative, then it seems like we can let bad things happen or right. like things that we think are bad. You know, now, well, maybe from some other perspective, it's good. And, it, you know, it, it just feels like we're not really understanding things or we don't have a good grip on on things. And I think it's an interesting question. Can is there something like this? Like, is there some you know formula or golden rule or something like that? And people have tried to find them. It's scary. I, I can understand why you wouldn't want everything to be relative because it feels like it's hard to figure out what's what's up or down. But I personally exactly. no, am inclined to when I think about things though, I do try to think like, well, from this perspective, it's not so bad. From that perspective, it's worse. And I and I kind of just end up like, Well, I don't know.
0: <laughs> <That laughs> I was just good? gonna Is say bad? that I don't know. <laughs> I know. I feel like we are in a place in this world and in life where A lot of people that I talk to, I feel this way too, but it's, you know, not just me like that. It's just, we're all just kind of living and trying to do our best and best is still relative, but like, you know, I could be doing this and somebody else could be doing that and we're both still doing our best, you know, and everybody's just like trying to, and the thing is, is that I I was reading something and, you know, they were talking about whether or not people in general are just like inherently good or whether you believe that about people. I would say that I used to feel that a lot more. Like I used to just kind of assume that people had everybody's best intentions um, at heart. But like now it's just just such an interesting world. There is just so much relativity and everybody is just doing their own thing and like has totally different beliefs. So yeah, it would be amazing for something to come out that it's like, this is good, this is bad, do this, don't do that. (laughs) And like, let's just move on. But I don't know. I have no idea what that would even look like.
1: Yeah. And I think like, I just briefly want to mention um, Nietzsche famously, you know, says, oh, like has this passage called the madman where this guy comes in and he's yelling, you know, God is dead. God is dead. We killed God. And so sometimes you'll see shirts that say God is dead. And I think that people oh who have these shirts are doing it in sort of like a provocative, like inflammatory way, like, ha God is dead. God isn't real. Nietzsche, on the other hand, in the madman I think has a more complicated relationship with the, this, what he calls the death of God, which he sees happening around him. And I think that like, we are in a post God era and, and the madman, interestingly enough, when he runs in and says, you know, God is dead, people laugh at him. They don't believe him. They don't, they are like, you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about? And then the madman says like, Oh, my time hasn't come yet. Like eventually you'll, you'll know what I mean. And I think we're Nietzsche's always doing that. Like eventually you'll know what I mean. And I think he's really relevant to our age. He is sort of prophetic in that way, but Nietzsche talks about, or the madman through Nietzsche, you know, we won't know, or we no longer know, like, which way is up, which way is down, like, what's good, what's bad, like, we are totally disoriented, like the the center point of our existence for the past, you know, a few 1000 years is suddenly removed. And we haven't quite like felt the implications, like we haven't really dealt with like the tremors of removing what we took to be the good, basically, like our standard for what's good and what's right, we've removed it. And what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to function? How are we supposed to ensure that anything is done well or wrong? Or what does that even mean? Like, we have to totally reevaluate how we think of our values. And that is a, a scary undertaking. And I think that that passage, the madman, like I said, people often take the phrase God is dead as like sort of this edgy atheist remark. But I think Nietzsche is much more concerned about how do we reconcile with the fact that we're going into a world where everybody's trying to do their best, but nobody really knows what the best is, or like what they should be doing.
0: Right. Right. And it's scary. Yeah, I think so, too. It's terrifying.
1: I guess we've gone for about an hour, an hour or so. And I think I'm basically done. So I think in the next episode, we'll finish up the meditations. After that, I want to go on to uh, David Hume. And so the next, we'll go over the fifth and sixth meditations. The fifth meditation um, is on the existence of God revisited and also of corporeal things or like bodily things or matter. So we'll finally see why we don't need to doubt everything. <laughs> we'll finally <I> think we <laughs> to put everything back together, at least Descartes hopes. Yeah. And the sixth meditation covers what Descartes calls the real distinction between mind and body. And like, this is the big bad conclusion, the one that I think a lot of people still assume where we're like, oh, you know, we talk about like, well, my body is sick or like my body is this, but like my mind is fine. Like, you know, just sort of talking about these two things as though they're different. Right. Uh, I think is, you know, a very Cartesian way of viewing the world that these two things are different. And people come after him and, you know, try to see them as one or as like united. And it's it's really weird when they do that. But anyway, we'll get into it then. Uh thanks for listening.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. And you're coming here today, right? Your flight leaves today.
1: Yes. Uh no, yeah, I'm going to edit this and then Uber over to the airport.
0: <laughs> and fun. We'll have a safe flight. I don't know if I'll get to see you tomorrow, but hopefully at some point, even just for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everyone.